0: It is always a joy to be here. Um, for one thing, I miss this pulpit. <laughs> it's like my favorite ever. Um, you know, as we look at our topic for this weekend, Providence, I think it's important that we that we define the term. And uh, this is something that, um, for me, has been even more meaningful uh, as of late, uh, I was able to be here shortly after going through all of you know my recent escapades and heart failure and heart surgery and um, all of these other things. And as I've told some of you, you know, when when we got to the Mayo Clinic in, in Jacksonville, Florida, um, they didn't, of course didn't tell me this at the time, but Um, After we got into all of this and began to be treated, um, my main cardiologist uh, made it clear that we got there within an hour or two of my death. And our normal response to that is, well, that was providential. Now, it was, but not in the way that we usually mean it. You see, for most Christians, we think, you got there within a couple hours of death, you didn't die, therefore that was providential. But if I would have died, unless you understand that that would have been providential as well, you don't understand providence. You see, for most of us, we use the word providence as a substitute for luck. That was providential. We mean, it could have been bad, but it ended up being good. Therefore, it was providential. That is not what providence means. And so over the course of this weekend, we're going to look at this word. I'm going to define it for you this evening. But before I define that for you, I'm going to leave you hanging, right? Some of you are like, well, if that's not what it means, what does it mean then? I'm getting ready to tell you something else. I know, you're like, no, I really want you to tell me what it, I will. But this conference is built around our confession. And we live in a post-confessional age, not an anti-confessional age, but a post-confessional age. Let me explain what I mean by that. There, There was a time in the not too distant past when you you could have accurately described our culture and really most cultures as anti-confessional. And people were anti-confessional for one of two main reasons. One was liberalism. Liberalism looked at the confession and basically said, we reject those doctrines. Liberalism would look at the confession and what the confession said about the inerrancy of scripture and would say, we reject the inerrancy of scripture. We we'll look at what the confession says about creation and say, we reject the idea of special creation. So, so liberalism was anti-confessional. It looked at the confession and it said, no, we disagree. The second major reason that people were anti-confessional was experientialism. Experientialism looked at confessions and said, we don't necessarily disagree, but we don't want to put God in a box, We don't wanna be held to this this confession. We don't wanna be held to an idea of a confession. We don't wanna put God in a box. We don't wanna say what God can't do or can't be or something of that sort, but it was was based on experientialism. It, It was based on the idea of immediacy. It was based on the idea of continued revelation. It was based on the idea that we're still waiting on God to give us more. It was based on the idea that the scriptures essentially are not sufficient. So those are the two main streams, as as I see it, of anti-confessionalism. But what we're experiencing now is post-confessionalism. And what I mean by that is... Anti-confessionalism, whether it was from liberalism or experientialism, at least it acknowledged the confession, and it knew what was in the confessions. It just didn't agree with the confessions. Now we're in an era where most Christians don't know what a confession is. If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. I get emails from a lot of people who've read, for example, they've uh, they've, they've read. Uh, my book, Family Shepherds, and I talk about confessions and catechisms, and I get a lot of emails and questions from people about confessions and catechisms, and you know, you're like, what? What's a good catechism? That's one of the questions that I, I get. i like, what's a good catechism? Well, a good catechism is a catechism that teaches your confession, because catechisms were designed to teach confessions in bite-sized pieces, and people go, oh, okay. What's a good confession? <laughs> See, that's post-confessionalism. We don't, we don't, we're so far removed from confessionalism that, that, they, that they don't even occupy a real space in our understanding. So now in this era, here we are in a confessional church having a confessional conference recognizing that many of you may be post-confessional and that's okay. It is fine if you came here unconfessional. Just don't leave that way. (laughs) So our confessions are really our way of communicating what we believe in a very succinct way and a lot of people say you know they want to say well yeah my my confession is the Bible great the Bible's huge and my confession is the Bible so Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses they both say I agree with that and you say well no 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 now hold on not, not the Bible as they understand it, but when I say Bible, what I mean is, guess what? You just became confessional. Because now you're explaining what you mean when you say Bible, right? No, I, creeds and confession, no creed but Christ. Again, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses could say amen to that. And immediately you start saying, well, when I say Christ, what I mean is, guess what? you just got confessional. Because now you're explaining what you mean when you say Christ. That's all a confession is. It's explaining what we mean when we say, we believe, A, B, C, and X, Y, Z. They do not supersede the scriptures. The confessions start with, here's what we mean by the scriptures. Here's the authority of the scriptures. Well, what we're looking at in this weekend is the chapter on providence. And my responsibility is to look at the first paragraph tonight, chapter five on divine providence, second London Baptist confession. Uh, 1689. It's really 1677 to 1689, but 1689. Of divine providence. And I think you have, you have it there. First paragraph God, the creator of all things, In his infinite power and wisdom doth uphold, direct, depose, and govern all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence to the end for the which they were created. According unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. So the first paragraph talks about the end for which things were created. Let me give you a couple of succinct definitions when we're talking about providence. John Gill says providence is the external work of God by which all the creatures God has made are preserved, governed, guided, and directed. He goes on, the word itself is never used in scripture yet the thing itself or what is meant by it is fully declared and clearly expressed as that God upholds all things by his power, governs the world by his wisdom, looks down upon the earth, takes notice and care of all his creatures in it and makes provision for them and guides and directs them to answer the ends for which they were made which is the sum and substance of providence. Let me give you one more from Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem says, We may define God's providence as follows. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. That's number one. God keeps all things existing and he keeps them maintaining the properties with which he created them. By the way, this is why we can do science. Because of providence. Because we can count on things being maintained in their properties. You can have a watch. Why can you have a watch? Because the heavenly bodies all move the way they're supposed to move. They're maintained. They stay that way. We know that water freezes at the freezing point, right? 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Why, why do we know that? Providence. God sees to it that the things that he created maintain their properties. We don't live in a random universe. It is ordered and it is maintained. That's providence. So number one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which they were, he created them. Two, he cooperates with created things in every action, directing them or directing their distinct properties to cause them to act as they do. So he cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. He gives them their properties, sees to it that they maintain their properties, and then he he directs them. He cooperates with them. So it's, not, it's not, de- you're not deism, it's not the divine watchmaker, you know, who just says, okay, fine, here are your properties, go, be free, find yourself. No, he cooperates with them, he cooperates with them. And then finally, he directs them to fulfill his purposes. He directs them to fulfill his purposes. Creates things, gives them their properties, sees that they maintain their properties, cooperates with these created things in every action, directing them to cause them to act as they do, and he directs them to fulfill his purpose. That's what we mean when we say providence. Well, if there's one passage of scripture to which... I would turn to look at this question of providence, and there are many. Um, it would be in Acts chapter 17. So turn with me there in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 22. We see that Paul and Silas in verse 10 were sent to Berea. Then in verse 16, we find, or verse 15, we see Paul being sent over to Athens. Verse 16, we find him in Athens waiting for the brethren. And then we have this interaction where we find Paul at Mars Hill before the Areopagus. He's been invited in, he's been preaching in the marketplace, and he's been invited to come and speak in this environment, in this setting where people do nothing but hear new things. And so Paul is there, and he preaches a sermon. So in verse 22, let's pick it up there. as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris. And others with them. Amen. So, this text gives us a number of things. Acts chapter 17 is an amazing uh, portion of scripture. Uh, I love the fact that you see Paul in a number of settings and you see how he interacted differently with different people. We see him in Thessalonica and he is in the synagogue basically debating and expounding on the scriptures. He's exegeting the text. Then later on, we see him here in Athens, and on Mars Hill, he preaches a very different sermon because he has a very different audience. This is is not a Jewish audience. This is a Greek audience. This is not an audience that, um, that, that knows the scriptures like his previous audience. So here, he proclaims the gospel in a different way. He proclaims the the meta-narrative of the gospel, and he really gives them creation, fall, redemption, and consummation in preaching the gospel, touching on all of those aspects. But at the core of his sermon is the question of providence. And we see that in several ways. First of all, we see that God's providence is rooted in his sovereignty. Now, we often confuse these two. Sovereignty is about God's authority. God's authority. Providence is the way he exercises his authority. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Those two statements there, the God who made the world and everything in it, and him being the Lord of heaven and earth. The Westminster Larger Catechism asks in question 12, what are the decrees of God? The answer is the decrees or God's decrees are the wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of his will, whereby from all eternity he has for his own glory unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time, especially concerning angels and men. Verse, or question 14, how does God execute his decrees? This is important. God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. God has decreed whatsoever comes to pass. He is the sovereign God of the universe. He sits enthroned in the heavens and he does whatever pleases him. And he has decreed all things that come to pass. Nothing happens by accident. There is no such thing. God never slumbers nor sleeps. He is never caught by surprise. He is never early. He is never late. He is always right on time. And he executes his decrees in his works of creation and providence. And what do we have here in verse 24? The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. We have creation and we have providence. We have sovereignty and providence there because he's Lord of heaven and earth, which means on the one hand, there is the title, he is Lord, he is the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth, But also, there is understood in this idea of him being Lord, the fact that he executes his will as Lord. And we see this as the text bears itself out. The God who made the world and everything in it. Job chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. But ask the beasts, and they will teach you. The birds of the heavens, and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare to you, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. He is the Lord, the creator, the sovereign ruler of all things. The Lord of heaven and earth. the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I, will pur- I have purposed and I will do it. The creator of heaven and earth, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he exercises his providence Isaiah fourteen twenty four. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. His sovereignty. Finally, Ephesians one eleven. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. His providence is rooted in His sovereignty. He is the creator of all things, and He executes His sovereignty, His rule over all things through His works of providence. Secondly, God's providence extends to all creatures and things. That's made clear from the same verse. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, it's all encompassing. And therefore, his providence extends to all creatures and all things, all creatures of our God and King. Amen? John 1 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overtaken it. Apart from him, nothing was made that has been made. Everything, every creature, all of creation, Now, there are times when we look at things and we may have the tendency or the inclination to say, I just don't think God made that. You just might see something that's like, you know, like a a slug. (laughs) And you just go, I mean, that one one just must have snuck in, right? I mean, that just... There are some creatures, you know, you look on the internet and you see this with a picture of that, like that hairless cat thing. And you just go, I'm just I'm just not gonna blame my God for that, you know? All things from the greatest to the smallest. All things. There's not one random or unnecessary molecule in all the worlds and there is nothing that exists outside of God's creation and providence it extends to all creatures and all things revelation 4:11 we hear the great host of heaven crying worthy are you o lord and god to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. All things. God's providence extends to all creatures and all things. By the way, if I could just put a pin here. Uh, And I've told you this before, one of the most difficult things that we've had to do over the last six years, we, we left here six years ago, to go help start African Christian University. And so many people would say, oh yeah, you, 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 you went to Africa to start a Bible college. No, actually, no, it didn't. Went to, went to Zambia to help start a classical Christian liberal arts university. Offering degrees in agriculture, business, education, fine arts, theology. Lord willing, we're getting ready to add chemistry and biology. We'll be doing some engineering and some medicine. Why? Because God's providence extends to all creatures and all things. And for far too long, Christians who are anti-confessional have been anti-intellectual. And we want to think that we come to church and on Sunday morning, we do the important stuff, the stuff that God's concerned about, the stuff that matters to God. But then on Monday, we go to the university or we go to our job and we do the things that are outside of God's providence or outside of the counsel of his will. And we believe that he has very specific and important things to say over here about the way that we govern the church, but nothing to say over here about the way that we govern society. No, God's providence extends to all creatures and all things. Everything that we do, whatever our hands find to do, we do it to the glory of God. It matters. It it, it matters how you do science. It matters to God how you do medicine. It it matters to God how you do engineering. It, It matters to God how you do architecture. It matters to God how you do parenting. It matters to God how you view aesthetics. It matters to God every area and aspect of life. It matters to God. Thirdly, God's providence flows from his aseity or his self existence. Verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God needs nothing. He is God all by himself, he has no needs. You know, one of the things that, there's, there's some of those things that just make us cringe, right, theologically. You know and, and one of the things that just make me cringe is when we, when we talk to little children and children ask a lot of questions, right and, and 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 when we tell little children that you know God, for example, made the world or that he made man because he was because he was lonely, no. no, Only people who are inadequate and have needs are lonely. God's not lonely. in fact. Not only is God, by virtue of being God, not lonely, but the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has existed as the triune God throughout all eternity and within the Trinity was not lonely. Amen, somebody? God needs nothing. God does not need you. I remember um, in, in, in my, my hospital bed. It was one of those moments where, you know, I was so proud of my wife and then a moment later just worried. <laughs> Bridget was on the phone with someone and, and they were trying to be, you know, encouraging to her and, and basically saying, hey, listen, he's, he's, he's going he's gonna to make it. He's going to be okay because, you know, God's got work for him to do. And I remember my wife on the phone saying, you know, I appreciate that, but God is no man's debtor, and he doesn't need my husband. I'm praying that he spares my husband, but if he does, it won't be because he needs him. And I was like, look at you, girl. (laughs) But I'm not sure how I feel about that. Like... And she got off the phone and I was like, but, but you need me, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, we're, I mean, long, you know, as long as the theology is straight over there and it's just right here, we're like, you, you need me, right? Yes, yes. God needs nothing. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. And he's going to prove it one day because we're going to die. Somebody's going to get all our stuff and the world's going to keep on spinning. It won't even slow down to acknowledge your loss. God needs nothing. He's God all by himself. Romans eleven thirty-six: 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Deuteronomy four thirty-nine: Know therefore today... And lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am he. And there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Isaiah 44, 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. God is God all by himself. He is self-existent and he needs nothing. Job 41.11, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God owes you nothing and he needs nothing from you. Psalm 50, 10 through 12. For every beast of the field is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fruits are mine. I love that. God says if I was hungry, and I wouldn't be hungry. But if I was, I wouldn't tell you. Because the day God needs something from you is the day that God is not God. We also know that God's providence applies uniquely to man. And this is something that's important to say in this day of radical out of control environmentalism and earth worship and creature worship. Man is being presented as somehow unnecessary an intruder. Like, like there's nature and then there's and then there's man. Like, like on the one hand, we're we're not a part of nature. We're not natural. Like we're like we're a blight on the world. Verse 26, verses 26 through 28 in Acts 17. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods of their boundaries. Listen to the providence here. listen, listen Listen to the intentionality. First, God made. Second, God determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own prophets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Man is the crown and glory of the creation of God. He says let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And he makes man male and female. After the image and likeness of God himself. Man is the crowning glory of the creation of God. God did not make the stars to seek after him. God did not make the birds of the air or the fish of the sea to seek after him. To have relationship with him. God did not make the beasts of the fields to seek after him, to have relationship with him. Man is the only thing in creation that God has made this way. And so his providence is applied uniquely to man. And even more uniquely to the church. Man matters more to God than do other things. And again, in this era in which we live, it almost seems uncomfortable to say that, that man matters more to God. If you have to choose between man and and the habitat of some endangered field mouse, take a picture of the mouse, (laughs) put it in a museum, do everything we can to help him make it, but he doesn't come first. famous passage in Luke chapter 12 beginning at verse 22 he said to his disciples therefore I tell you do not be anxious about your life what you will eat nor about your body what you will put on for life is more than food and the body more than clothing consider the ravens they neither sow nor reap they have neither storehouse nor barn and yet God feeds them and how much and of how much more value are you than the birds right in the face of environmentalism right there But tomorrow thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith, you're worth more. In fact, in God's providence, all of the other things that he made, he gave us dominion over. They're for us. History is the story of God's dealing with man. I love this quote from Benjamin Franklin. The longer I live, the more convincing proof I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of man. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? Job twelve twenty three to 25, he makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and he leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope in the dark without light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. I could make a comment there about modern political situations, but some connections just don't even need to be made. (laughs) Finally, the end of God's providence is his glory and redemption. The end of God's providence is his glory and redemption. And not only is he going to redeem man, he's going to redeem the rest of creation as well. Amen? New heavens, new earth. Beginning of verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. First, he commands. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge. He commands, he fixed, He will judge the world with righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. God did these things. In his providence, he did these things. And notice that there is past, present, and future here. Because God, in his providence, governs all things All things that have happened, have happened because of God's providence. All things that are happening, are happening because of God's providence. All things that will come to pass, will come to pass because of God's providence. And then I love how the text ends there in that last section. There's a a word here about the way that we view redemption. Really the way we do evangelism and missions. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. Some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Some believed, some didn't. What determined who believed and who didn't? Providence. 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 Twins, raised in the same home by the same parents go to the same church hear the same sermon one gloriously converted the other not what was the difference providence Ephesians 2, 6 through 7. It says we were raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Providentially, God saves some in order to point to the riches of his grace and his mercy. Romans 9, to 23, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Providence. Providence. Providence is not just the Christian version of luck. Providence doesn't mean that something turned out better than it could have. Providence refers to the means and the ways by which and through which the sovereign creator of the universe governs all things. According to the counsel of his will, And to the the praise of his glorious grace. This is providence. I'm grateful for God's providence that allowed me to live. Amen? Amen? However, I know this. I didn't look today. I meant to check today, but I didn't look today. But the last time I checked, the death rate was still one per person. which means this time in God's providence I didn't die but there will come a time where in God's providence I will die and my death will be as providential as my non-death because providence is not about you or me God and his glory. And the way that he creates us for his glory, cooperates with us for his glory, and causes us to fulfill his purposes for his glory. And ultimately, we see that in the redemption of God's elect. God sends forth his son to die for sinners that God sends forth his son and in his providence Christ takes on the sins of his people he lives a life that we could not live and dies a death that we could not die in order to pay a price that we could not pay and he defeats death, hell and the grave who rises again on the third day and is available to all who will come to him through repentance and faith providence brought Christ into the world providence brought Christ to the cross providence providence Christ from the dead wasn't an accident, and providence brings Christ to you. May God grant you grace that in His providence you not only hear but you heed and respond.